morning's scripture is from 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also receive and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that we can come before you this morning with um, open minds and open eyes and humble hearts to be filled with your word and with your truth. God, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercies that are new every morning. And I just pray that this morning you would deepen us in our knowledge of you and in our love for you as well. God, I pray that you would be with Daniel as he preaches this morning and that you would free our minds from any distractions so that we can focus on you alone. Jesus, we love you so much, and I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. How's everybody doing on this Florida cold kind of morning? Good? Yeah, someone said it was cold, and I said, no, it's Florida cold. All right, there's a... There's a vast difference. My name's Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Lathia, and uh, looking forward to delivering God's word to you this morning. But before we get into the heart of the text this morning, uh, I want you to just take a moment, and I want you to remember and reflect and recall two or three just beautiful, awe-inspiring, breathtaking, unforgettable moments in your life. So just find one of those. Find one of those great moments and just really latch onto it emotionally. Some of my breathtaking, unforgettable moments are seeing my soon-to-be wife as the doors to the sanctuary flung wide open and I got to see my bride in her dress and all of her radiant glory for the very first time. The very first thing that entered my mind was, she is such a liar. <laughs> you want to know why? Because she had told me all about this wedding dress that she was going to wear and it was all a lie to wear a different wedding dress. But immediately after that, I was totally captivated by her beauty. But that was, the first thought. that was the first thought that entered my mind when the doors of the sanctuary. Don't you appreciate that? What a liar. <laughs> Another one of those great, awe-inspiring, just unforgettable moments for me was first car, first day with my license, first time without an adult in the passenger seat, summer birthday, Driving down the road, windows down. Back then, that was total freedom when we didn't have cell phones or any other things like that. Another awe-inspiring moment, the first time I held any of my four children in my arm for the very first time. Now let's go to the other end of the spectrum. This may be a little bit more difficult to do, but... Can you remember, reflect, and recall and engage somewhat emotionally on two or three of the, the hardest moments in your life? A life that was, or a moment that was seemingly unbearable. Maybe you felt as if the world was caving in all around you. Some of mine include. A really good friend who moved away when I was eight years old. Another being a cousin that I grew up with 
to because his girlfriend broke up with him in high school, committed suicide. And still, on about a every month to every other month basis, when I get that call from my mother that my brother, who is a homeless drug addict, has been arrested for now probably the 30th or 40th time in his life. And he's destroyed his wife and his family and his little girl. We all have these, these moments in our lives that are amazing. And we have moments in our lives that are incredibly difficult. Some of these difficult moments, they're quick and they pass, but others kind of pile on like homework and quizzes that somehow the professors seem to organize and conspire together to make them all happen at once. And here are three just quick things that I know about these hard, difficult moments in our lives. Number one, we don't like them at all, do we? Number two, we will try and avoid them, and we will often go at great lengths to do so. Many will even go as far to try and medicate that pain because they do not want to experience the hard, difficult moments of life. And number three, when the hard moments of suffering become inescapable and capture us, what we want is a true friend who we know loves us and has been through tough times as well. We want someone who is willing to walk through these tough times with us. And I want to expand on that moment briefly here this morning because as a Christian, though I recognize that God is there in the good moments, I'm especially grateful knowing that he is there in the hard to hardest moments as well. I take great comfort and satisfaction in knowing that Jesus can identify and relate to every difficult moment in my life and each and every moment in your life as well even to a greater degree than I think sometimes we give him credit for. Now, so much of Christianity is focused on the cross, as it should be, right? I mean, God coming down in the flesh to rescue and redeem his, his rebellious creation and die in their place so that they could live forever with him, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, And at the heart of all we know, believe, and understand the grand narrative of Christianity to be. But I think sometimes we get so focused on the cross that, that when it comes to our own sufferings in life, we have, a, we have a hard time relating to Jesus because we feel like, well, my suffering is so trivial and minimal as compared to Jesus dying on the cross. And we try to find some way around it and try to and we minimize it rather than recognizing that Jesus walked through as just as many difficult moments in his day-to-day -day existence as you and I do. And so therefore, when we go and we pray to him, and we can go to him knowing that he understands exactly what we are going through and so there's nothing that we will encounter in this life in our own suffering to where Jesus would go no I don't get that like like, like, like I, I can't relate to you because I didn't experience that so so if you just if you just bear with me for a moment as I try to really broaden our topic before we really start to narrow in on what we're going to talk about. I just want you to just imagine and relate to Jesus in this way. So, so, so Jesus, before he became Jesus, was the Son of God, right? So he, he doesn't actually become Jesus and take on that name until he takes on flesh. So, so at one point, before anything is created, before God brings everything into existence, Father, Son, and Spirit exist co-eternally and co-equal with one another. There is this perfect community where there is perfect harmony, there is perfect love, and, and everything is good and great and wonderful. God creates all of this, 
even in the creation of all of this, the, the Son is still worshipped as God. The, the, the creation bows down before Him. It worships before Him. He's in heaven. He's being praised for his, all of His glory and all of His might. Well, humanity sins against God, and we know that this plan was predestined before time. But in this plan, it would be the Son who was sent. So, so Jesus leaves his throne on high where he's worshipped, where he's in perfect community, where everything is, is really spectacular for him. And he leaves this place to come and to take on flesh and to step down onto this earth. Now, Paul captures it in Philippians 2.7 in this way. Y'all do this to me every time I preach. But made himself nothing. Some people say he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So if we want to talk about kind of the condescension of Jesus, he goes from being worshipped by all of the, cre the creatures in the heavenly places to being in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he goes from the highest place in, in all of creation to really, which is a very low place. I mean, just think, he wasn't born into riches. He wasn't born into a royal court. He was born to a teenage girl who, because of what God was doing in her life through the virgin birth, she would have been shamed and ridiculed. He would have been seen as an illegitimate child born out of wedlock. Now, that may not be shocking in today's culture, but I know in the fundamental South where I grew up, like when a girl got pregnant in high school, like it was a big deal of shame. Many times they sent those girls away from their families to have their babies out of the sight because it was a big deal of cultural shame in the fundamental South that I was raised in. That would have been a very similar situation to which Mary would have had Jesus in. Most likely, he lost his dad when he was a teenager. The last time Jesus' dad is mentioned is when he's 12 years old. Joseph, the man who stuck by and honorably stayed with Mary, was no longer around. So Jesus would have borne the responsibility of providing for the family, of providing for his younger brothers and sisters. As he worked as a carpenter and a stonemason, he would have borne that responsibility of carrying the load, of producing financially for his family. He would have had to grind it out for 30 years as a regular dude. Jesus was just a regular guy, blue-collar guy, though he's God in the flesh, but he grounded out that all the things that we experience in this life, Jesus walked through each of those. So at 30, he enters into his public ministry. Beginning his public ministry, he begins it with a 40-day fast. Only water. Jesus can relate to those who are hungry and without food. On completion of his fast, in a depleted state, Satan comes directly to him with three incredible temptations through which he has to say no. So when we are dealing with incredibly strong temptations, Jesus understands. Jesus was often used simply for what people could take from him. Once it became known that he was a miracle maker, that he could heal the sick and, and, and do amazing things, people clamored at Jesus, not because they actually wanted to spend time with Jesus, but only for what they could get from Jesus. People regularly used Jesus just for what they could get from him. At one point, he, he heals a paralytic and he forgives the guy for his sins and he gets accused of blasphemy by the religious leaders. Another time, he gets in big trouble, and this happened to him often because he decided to eat at the wrong table in the cafeteria. He sat down with the sinners and the tax collectors, and the religious people didn't like it that he wasn't sitting at the right table in the cafeteria. And so often he gets mocked and scorned for that one. 
One time he decided to heal a man's hand on the Sabbath. And because of this, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they meet together with King Herod's royal people so they can find a way to destroy him for healing a man's hand on the Sabbath. Shortly after that, his family accused him of being out of his mind. You're crazy. You're nuts. Stop doing what you're doing. One time, after healing someone, he gets accused of being possessed by Satan. You're doing all this power by the work of the devil. Now, the examples I've given you are just from the first three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. This is the first three chapters. Now, if I go on just a little bit more, in Mark chapter 6, he gets rejected by everyone he knew growing up. See, he'd been doing ministry away from his hometown. He went back to his hometown to share truth and love with those people. And all they do is mock him and reject him and tell him to go away. Because just like the family said, you're crazy, you're nuts, get out of here. So now Jesus has been rejected by everyone except his 12 disciples. That great group of people who did everything that Jesus said and got everything that he said immediately... Right? No. Twelve. Most likely high teenage boys, maybe early 20s. So guys, we're talking about you, okay? So, you know, that sometimes are a little slow on the uptake with what Jesus was saying and doing in, in this day. So you've got to imagine he gets a little frustrated when he said something for the umpteenth time over and over and over. You'll understand one day because you're going to have your own teenagers, okay? So this is his group. He's basically left with these 12 guys because everyone else has rejected him. And the ones, other ones who are around, they just want him for what they can get from him. See, one time he even spent some time one-on-one -on -one with a guy who's known as the rich young ruler. And he said, look, you have all this stuff in your life, all these possessions, and you think this is life. But I want you to let go of that stuff and I want you to take hold of what is truly life. And it says Jesus loved this young man. His heart went out to this young man. But in that moment, that young man could not let go of his possession to take hold of what was truly life. And it truly broke Jesus' heart to watch this young man walk away from him and to choose momentary possessions over eternal possessions. Shortly after that, of that group of 12 guys, one of them betrays him and delivers him over to the religious leaders and to the Roman government. To that, he gets arrested, punched, kicked, mocked, scorned, and whipped 39 times with a cat of nine tails, all before being crucified. The most humiliating and torturous death the Romans could have been. In that moment of his crucifixion, he is abandoned by his disciples where he is left to suffer and die virtually all alone. I give you this big picture because I want to tell you that for today and for the rest of your life, whatever suffering you encounter for the rest of your life, Jesus gets it. Jesus can relate to it. He can connect to you on that level, and you should take great comfort in that. For though I read to you Philippians 2.7, if you expand the verse before and after in 6-8, through eight, it says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Everything I just walked you to is just an expanded version of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So you may be asking, why, why do I walk you through all of this? Um, and to that, I will give two replies. Number one is to say what I've already stated, that you, so that you know that Jesus can and does relate to you in your suffering. And number two, because of what Peter 
tells the church in his letter in verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4 today, rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. Now, isn't that the message that you want to hear from your sufferings? Isn't that the message that you want to hear when things are going really bad? And you are, you are lamenting to your friend or to your family member how hard life is. Well, what you really want to hear is someone come up to you and say, Hey, the Bible says rejoice in your sufferings. Don't you know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Isn't that what you want to hear? When your spouse is dying, when your child is dying, when you've lost your job, when things are just piling on, when the debt seems insurmountable, you just want someone to tell you to rejoice. You just want someone to tell you that it's all going to be, all going to work out. Let me just say, in general, when meeting with people, don't do that. Please don't do that. When, yeah, don't tell somebody, hey, you know God's going to use this for his glory, right? In about five years, when they've had some time to reflect and let it absorb in their soul, you can have that discussion. In the moments when the pain is the sharpest, do what Jesus said, mourn with those who mourn. One of the best things you can do is just sit there in silence. One of the greatest gifts you can give to another human being is to sit there in silence while they suffer. And I know it's hard because you want to talk and it feels really uncomfortable. And it feels like, what do I say? What do I do? Just sit there. Just sit there and let them grieve. Let them just be with them in their pain. Do not give them religious platitudes. But in this letter, Peter says this. But understand, he does this not in the context of what we were talking about. But he's been writing a letter, right? And he's been writing this letter. And this letter that we've been talking about, 1 Peter, as we've walked through it, we, we know that he has been writing this to a church who's experiencing persecution. He's writing this to a church that is suffering. And what he wants them to know is is really kind of seven things that he says to them that you're going to see up here on the screen. He's going to tell them, don't be surprised when you suffer. Rejoice when you suffer. Be glad when you suffer. You are blessed when you suffer. Don't be ashamed when you suffer. Glorify God when you suffer. And entrust your souls to a faithful creator. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the very first thing he wants them to know is do not be surprised. Okay? Now, I know any time suffering happens, here's how it usually works in the Christian life. Some type of suffering happens, and we say, uh-oh, what did I do wrong? What did what, what I do? Show me what I did. T tell me what I did wrong, and I'll go and fix it, okay? That is not, you shouldn't be your response. Do not be surprised when you suffer. 
Now, you'll notice here that he says the fiery trial. And if you've been paying attention as we've been walking through 1 Peter chapter 4, you might recall in the very opening of his letter in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, what Peter's really doing here, this is kind of the close of his instruction to the church around the topic of suffering. So he's summing up everything that he has said. But the main point that Peter is going to drive home to the church in this moment is that it is a suffering that comes directly for bearing the name of Christ. The suffering that comes directly from being a Christian. So suffering is a grand category in Scripture. And it is one that we, you, we could never exhaust in all of our lives if we talked about it. Why do we suffer? And why, how do all these things happen? How does God work out pain for our good? I and mean, it's a vast subject. But in today's message, Peter is bringing all of this home, all of this talk about suffering is coming to rest in one final point that he makes right here in verses 12 through 14. And it is those who are suffering for bearing the name of Christ. And so Peter does not want them to be surprised. I, I will just tell you that the, 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 the most often when I see people's faith get shipwrecked, it's because they did not have a proper understanding, a proper theological understanding of suffering before it happened. Because suffering will always dry, either drive you away from God or drive you to God. This is why you need to get a good theology of suffering before it happens. Get it into your heart, mind and into your heart so that you will not be surprised. So Peter is just reaffirming everything that he has said to them to not be surprised. Because if you are surprised, there's a good chance you will, get over, you will get overwhelmed and you will conclude that God does not love you, which is not true. You need to understand that suffering is a part of life for everyone, but there is a particular type of suffering for Christians because they bear that name. And Jesus warned us about this when he was speaking to his disciples in John chapter 15, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Peter was there. Peter heard this warning. Peter's not surprised that the persecution that the church is experiencing in Peter is taking place because he heard this from Jesus. He saw Jesus go through this, and he says for us not to be surprised as well. Now, if we take this out of the context of what was taking place 2,000 years ago when Peter was writing to the church, into the church today, we, we have to understand that we as followers of Jesus should not be surprised when the world does not understand but also vehemently disagrees with us, argues with us, and puts hateful memes on the internet about us because we bear the name of Christ. We should not be surprised that the world vehemently disagrees with us that we believe that all life is precious, even life in the womb. We, we should not be surprised that, that the world is against us in this way. We should not be surprised that, that when we espouse that, according to the Bible, 
And what Jesus affirms and all of Scripture affirms, that man is only that marriage is only to be between a man and a woman. We are going to get ridiculed for that. That, that should not surprise us in any way, shape, or form. When we speak about sex and we say we have this sexual ethic that says, according to the Scripture, sex is only pleasing in the eyes of God between a man and a woman who are in heterosexual monogamous marriage. God says, this is how I've designed it, this is how I've created it, and anything outside the bounds of that is a sin and is not pleasing to God. The world is going to hate you for that. They are going to disagree with you about that. They are going to say nasty, awful things to you about that. They are going to call you names over that. Some worse than others. Don't be surprised at that. When you uphold the biblical idea that God created two genders, male and female, the world is going to hate you for that. When you lay out your best arguments that science and faith are totally compatible, they're going to think you're an idiot. But they're totally compatible. When you tell someone in the most nice, kind, loving, sweet, time-investing way that you can't get to heaven by being a good person, they're going to hate you for that. Why do you think you're better than them? Dude, I just told you, I'm not. Jesus is. Yeah, but I hate you for saying that. All right? That's how it goes. When you tell someone that Jesus is the only way, you're being exclusive. I mean, in, in all these things, in all of these topics, you are going to get called names. You're going to be, you're going to be called hateful. You're going to be called a bigot. You're going to get called exclusive. All of these things in this life because you bear the name Christian. Because you, you actually believe and uphold that this book is the divinely inspired and errant word of God. And you just need to know that's part and parcel with this whole thing of following Jesus. So do not be surprised when people tell you that you are believing in a childish fairy tale, that you're closed-minded, that you're being divisive, and that you are excluding people. Here's what Jesus says directly to you in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. This is actually a good thing when people do this to you. Why? Because blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Now, what, what are two of the key things that Peter said in this? What did he say? Rejoice and be glad. When people persecute you and say all kinds of things about you, all Peter has done in today's passage is paraphrase what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest sermon. It's his greatest sermon, his most well-known sermon. And the, the opening part is all of these things about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteous, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, and all those things. But he concludes it with these two verses. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In today's passage, Peter has just quoted Jesus. Don't be surprised. Rejoice and be glad. And listen, I know this is something all of you guys experience. If you try to espouse the name of Jesus, if you try to proclaim the name of Jesus in public, if you even, even if you don't say what you believe or, or an idea, if you just say, I am a Christian, I know there is some suffering that takes place to, toward you just simply because you bear that name. In group me this week, a, part, a group I'm a part of, I asked some of you guys, hey, tell me your experience with this here um, on this. And here's how some of you responded. Um, uh, Pastor Kevin had some good ones. He said that he has had sand kicked on him at the beach while he tried to tell someone about Jesus. 
This one, I think, is my favorite. Another time he was sharing Jesus uh, at an apartment with somebody, and the guy's roommate came and threw condoms at him. Um, I really hope they weren't open yet. But um, he's had close friends and relatives tell him that, uh, that he supports and participates in hate, spe- hate speech because he is a follower of Jesus. Somebody else said, I have had relatives with whom I am close accuse me of thinking I'm better than they are and judging them. I've had co-workers mock my worldview when I bring up Christ and the gospel as we discuss current events. I also once had a professor ask me what made me think I was so much better than her just because I said I was a Christian. Uh, that's, that's a pretty big jump. The, you know, hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, so you think you're better than me. Um, and, you know, and, and that she would go out of her way because she knew he was a Christian to minimize, minimize and belittle Christianity and him in the classroom. Now, it, it is interesting, again, this is kind of what love does because he ends up engaging this professor in conversation, um, and they actually end up having a lot of dialogue about this, and most of the dialogue apparently took place in gay bars in their local town. So, but it just kind of showed, and after that, the attitude and demeanor from the professor in the classroom greatly changed, simply because the person stepped toward them in love and didn't revile, but simply engaged in the conversation, say, hey, I don't think that. Let me, let's have this conversation. Many of you are in the science realm, and, you know, I, I did think this one was really funny. It says, the physics peers I'm usually around think that having faith is a lack of understanding or being lazy in seeking understanding of how the universe works. So this person's a PhD in physics, and so I'm just like, how do you think they're being lazy if they're trying to get a PhD in physics, <laughs> right? Like, that's the opposite of lazy, is getting a Ph.D. in physics, okay? So, yeah, that one didn't make sense to me. But anyway, um, that it's basically, uh, we're usually using God as a crutch, and that basically Christianity would hold some back from truly reaching their fullest potential in discovery and research. Um, and it goes on, on and on and on. That it, In the sciences, people don't value, they say you don't eva- value interpretations based on evidence um, as a Christian, which is a flawed accusation. And... Someone said, yeah, I've had a co-worker in a science lab ask me why as a Christian. I am working in the sciences due to my beliefs. And he went into detail why religion shouldn't meddle with science. And eventually that guy ended up reading the Bible sometime after that conversation due to me just talking to him about, his, about, about my faith. So like, like we recognize and we realize this is a part of life. And you will get this wherever you go. You're going to get it here at the university. You're going to get it in your workplace. You're going to get it in your, in your children's activities. Everywhere you go for the rest of your life, you are going to experience this some type of suffering simply for bearing the name of Christian in your life. And so to that, again, that, that is what it's, Peter is speaking to. But just realize he also comes out of Acts 5.41 where it says after being really persecuted and, and, and being beaten. It says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And so this is where when, when you feel persecution or suffering or rejection from the world around you because you bear the name of Christ, you need these verses about rejoice and be glad. You need them in your back pocket. You need them in your mind. You need them in your heart so that you don't get distraught and, and flustered and discouraged, but that you actually walk away jazzed up because, hey, I was just counted worthy for the name of Jesus. That's better than a pay raise. You know, that's better than a new car. If you've got, if, if you really understand this connection with Jesus, and you understand that this is God counting you worthy of the name that you bear, that's a pretty big reason to rejoice and celebrate. That's a way to walk with confidence into, inside of, and through any situation that might come your way. Now, Peter, true to himself, uh, just can't, he wanted to make sure in this topic of suffering, he wanted to remind you, hey, if you are insulted for the name of Jesus, you're blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Verse 15 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He's just saying, hey, look, 
Sometimes there will be suffering that comes from the world. But don't be the source of your own suffering, right? Like, let's just be honest. Most of the time, we're the source of our own suffering. Can everybody, uh-huh, can we do this? We, most of the time, we are the source of our own suffering, our own sinfulness, our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness. Yeah, all those things. We, we're our own source. And Peter's like, don't do that. Like, if it's going to be hard enough from the outside world, don't be your own greatest cause of your own suffering. So I would say to you, if you are going, yeah, life is hard, life is difficult, I'm pretty miserable, I'm suffering right now, take an honest look. Is it because of your own sinfulness, self-centeredness, selfishness? If so, three things. Acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, and repent of your sin. That's always the biblical pattern for sin. Acknowledge it, confess it, and repent of it. Jumping in to verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, it's very interesting when he talks here about don't be ashamed, about glorifying God in the name. What he is saying is when you experience suffering directly from people because you bear the name of Christ, don't shrink back. Don't become small simply because someone called you names or said mean things about you. Because he actually says, because in his idea of shrinking back, it's actually shameful to shrink back and deny Christ before unbelievers. Do not shrink back from people. Do not be ashamed because you bear that name. Proudly be willing to bear that name of Christ in whatever persecution it might bring. Do not shrink back. This is, you have to understand, this is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's saying, I don't shrink back from proclaiming the gospel because I know it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because see, if you shrink back, then no one knows you actually really believe this stuff. No one actually knows that this, this is the core and the center of your being. This is what, because remember, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. It's not a denying, taking up your cross kind of faith that the moment someone calls you a bad name, you shrink back and you never speak of this again. Or, or, or you always try, find yourself trying to apologize for speaking the truth in love to people. Look, I, I'm not telling you to go out and go into the rights union with a bullhorn tomorrow and, and preach to every student that walks by, okay? But what I'm saying is, don't shrink back. You have to remember when I preached a few weeks ago out of um, 1 Peter chapter 2, in light of what Christ has done for us, remember spiritual house, royal priesthood, all of these great things that have been bestowed upon us as living stones. The two things were we are to declare the excellencies of Christ and to demonstrate good works. That's what it means to be faithful. And, and the problem is, is that so often, and this is, this is very key, that you are part of a good church to where you get very clear Bible teaching. And I want you to listen to this quote from David Platt. He, listen, he says, look, the, the message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period. Just, just listen to me for a moment. A church that only tells you that you are so sweet and cuddly and wonderful and God loves you, and if you were the only person in all the world, Jesus would have come and died just for you. They are not telling you the whole story. They are making the gospel about you. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is about Jesus. Listen to me. Discernment is not about determining right and wrong. It is about determining what is right and almost sounds right. And there are so many churches and so many messages today that are taking this gospel and they are distorting it and they are making it all about you. 
God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And there's a massive and. The smallest part of it all is that God loves you. The big part of this thing is the true gospel. And look what David Platt goes on to say. He says, the message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period, as if we were the object of our own faith. The message of biblical Christianity is God loves me so that I might make him, his ways, his salvation, his glory, and his greatness known among all nations. God is the object of our faith and Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. And see, If we shrink back, if we become ashamed of the gospel when someone pushes on us with their words and actions, it reveals to us that we have made the gospel more about ourselves than about Jesus. Because in spite of any persecution or suffering we may experience in any realm of life, if we truly value Jesus above all things, if we really believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and the only way to to obtain eternal life, then we will not shrink back in proclaiming the goodness and greatness of Jesus and demonstrating good works to a world no matter how much they hate us. And that is why so many people throughout the centuries have willingly stood in the fire. It's why they have said, I would much rather die than renounce the name of Jesus. But it's why when I said to you a few weeks ago, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. How can we turn around and How can we turn away from that? If we turn away, it shows that our eyes are more on the earthly treasures and prize and comfort and convenience like the rich young ruler than they are on the king of glory of Jesus Christ himself. Peter gives them a grand warning, a big, huge statement in 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18, when he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, Peter here is not saying that the the righteous are scarcely saved as if they were almost consigned to destruction and were just pulled from the flames. Like you just, you you barely made it. You know, singe on the backside. That's, That's not what he's telling them. What he's saying is, that if the righteous, if the children of God are saved with great difficulty, and if they have to suffer and endure in order to be saved, then what's it going to be, be like for those who don't? Now you may be asking yourself, and here's the grand question, why do we suffer? Because he's going to tell us, if anyone suffers according to God's will, right? So he said, hey, there's, there's your own sinful, stupid suffering that you do on your own that you bring to yourself. But there is a type of suffering that God brings into your life. And you need to know this. And you need to put this in your theological box. You need to lock it away in your, in your brain and in your heart for the rest of your life. When, not if, when God brings suffering into your life, in the manner we've talked about today, for being persecuted for the name, or with disease or sickness, or anything for you or for your family, you need to know it has one grand design, all right? I don't have this verse up there, but Romans 8, 29 says, God's highest goal for you is to conform you to the image of Jesus. You you need to know that. Everything that happens in your life has one end in mind, in God's mind, to conform you to the end of Jesus. And God in his own wisdom, in his own love, in his own sovereignty, brings suffering into your life to make you more like him. He does. Whether you like it or not, he does. Now, you've got to remember this. Jesus is big brother. We follow Jesus in everything, right? The Bible tells us that 
Jesus had to suffer in learning obedience. So if Jesus had to suffer in learning obedience in the flesh, why would we think that we are too good not to? Because when we say, why me, Lord? What you're saying, but you don't know you're saying is, I think I'm better than Jesus. The perfect one had to suffer to learn obedience. Why would we think we are above suffering? Now, now, now look what he says. This judgment begins at the household of God. And the reason this judgment comes, you remember back to the fiery trial, the very beginning, and the gold. How do you get gold pure? Put in fire. It burns away all the crap. It burns away all the dross. So it can become pure gold. The reason God brings suffering into our life is to purify us. To make us worthy of the home that we will one day inherit when we stand in his presence forever. To make us more like Jesus. And is this not what our brother preached on last week in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, God brings suffering into our life to purify us, to show us just how much greater He is than the things of this world. Because let me just say, it is so easy to get our hearts attached to the thing of this world. And when it gets too attached, you know what God does? He's like, I got I to gotta burn that part off. I got to take, because they, they're getting too far down this road. And if they get too far down this road, they're going to get so attached to this. But before they get there, I'm going to have to cut this thing that looks good in their life. That they think they really want and they really desire and they've really been running after. But I'm going to cut it off because they don't realize that it's taking them down a road away from me so many times. And God will test you with suffering so many times because... He wants you to continually see that he is of greater treasure and worth than all the things of this world. And let me just say it's an incredibly hard lesson to learn, and it's one he will teach you for the rest of your life. The judgment that begins with God's people purifies those who truly belong to God. And that purification comes through suffering, making believers morally fit for their inheritance. If the righteous is scarcely saved in this life, what will become of the ungodly in his place? This is why hell is a reality today. This is why Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else. Because it is a grand and great reality. It is why we need to go and proclaim the excellencies of Christ to people. Christ is the only hope that people have. This is why we cannot shrink back, Alacia Church. This is why you must be bold in your love. You must be bold in the things that you do before a lost and dying world. And you must be bold in your proclamation, speaking the truth and love to people, even if they hate you for it. Because Jesus is the only, un, only name under heaven given to men by which they might be saved. When we do this, knowing that people will reject us in the process, what it communicates to us is that we love God more than we fear people. Too often people are big and God is small. We need to recover God being big and people being small. For Jesus is the only way. And as you go out today, and as you go out this week, and for the rest of your lives, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, just remember to entrust your soul to your faithful Creator. Because when you suffer according to God's will, 
you are to entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. The question that I want to leave you with today as followers of Jesus is, is can you actually say you are entrusting your soul enough to God that you're willing to take bold steps of faith in proclaiming the excellencies of Christ to a world who so desperately needs them? Are you willing to, to, to take I- intentional movements toward people to share the gospel? Are you willing to, to risk a relationship to speak the name of Jesus? Are you, are you willing to, to risk a little bit of ridicule, scorn, and shame in, in class to speak up and go, hey, I have a different worldview than that. Can I speak to it for a moment? Are you willing to, to proclaim Jesus in your words and in your deeds? And you may find yourself lacking in that this moment. And as we said, that's a sin. That's a, that's a falling short. That is a missing the mark in what you are called to do. Because The gospel is not about you. It's like David Platt said, it's about you proclaiming the excellencies of Christ to a lost and dying world. His name, his salvation, his fame. So today we're going to give you the opportunity in the band that you can go ahead and come on up. I just want you to wrestle with this question. And remember, there's three parts to this. You, You can acknowledge it, but it's not enough just to acknowledge your shortcomings. You have to also confess your shortcomings to God and to one another. But also you're called to repent of those shortcomings and to turn and to do what you are called to do. And so I want you to ponder for a moment in your heart, are you willing to suffer for the name by proclaiming the name of Jesus to people? We're just going to give you a couple of moments to, um, to think about that meditate on that and they're going to play gently for a moment um, as you do that and then in a couple of minutes I'll pray and then we'll begin to move through communion As you ponder and as you wrestle in your own heart, maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind someone for you that you know you've shrunk back from, that he wants you to be bold and, and to take a step. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you take a step and just go blurt out the gospel tomorrow but as someone you need to be intentionally building a relationship toward. But maybe you know it's that time. Maybe there's that person that you've been building that relationship with, but you haven't taken that risk to step over that line and to share your faith with them, to explain the gospel, to let them know that you've been praying for them and that you are concerned about their soul. For those of you that God has put a specific person into your mind. I just want you to pray for a moment that God would give you courage. Because what you need is courage to stand strong and to speak for Christ. May He give you that courage.
Father, this series has been called the Everyday Church. What we want to be as a church every single day. Today, we did not come to church. Today, we came to a gathering, a gathering of the saints to worship, to hear your word. But Father, may we recognize and realize that if we do not take this word and what what we've learned and what you've taught us today, if we don't take it out to the world, then we have stopped being the church. All this was was just another class where we just sat here and listened and wondered, what was that? Why did I need to learn all that? Was it really worth my time? What's it going to matter in 10 years? But if we take to heart what Peter has told us today, then we will go into the world and we will proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I pray this week you would give us boldness and courage to take steps of faith to share the gospel. And that, Father, even if people respond in hateful ways, we would not shrink back, but that we would rejoice and be glad because we have been counted worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. And may we take more joy and honor and pleasure in suffering for that name than in anything we could ever accomplish in this life. God, give us boldness and bring people to repentance. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.